Welcome back to CrimeFiction.fm, where we bring the authors of today's best books directly to you. I'm your host, Stephen Campbell, and I'm here with Paul Bishop, the author of a fantastic new crime novel, Lie Catchers. Paul, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. I have to say, I... I just adored this book. I have every year I do this thing where in my own mind I think who who is the best new character that I've read this year and each year it's pretty clear when I get by the time I get to the end of the year and you are right there with this book uh and we're we're closing in on the end of the year. So uh th- these oh, well, are these are fantastic fantastic uh characters and I I you and I spoke before we started recording and this is the start of a series. I'm so pleased to hear that. So tell listeners a little bit about uh the two primary characters in the book. Um Ray Pagan and Calamity Jane Randall do not know each other at the beginning of the book. Um and and what I was planning on doing with these characters was avoiding all of the typical clichés of of partners who don't like each other and then end up liking each other. or uh, And I also wanted to stay away from a Holmes and Watson uh, type relationship. That wasn't what I wanted from these characters. Um, Ray Pagan is a very experienced interrogator. He is very, very good at what he does. Um, he uses what he considers smoke and mirrors, uh, all kinds of tricks and, and manipulations. And his key is Ray is an empath. He literally can feel what a suspect is feeling sitting in the chair across from him. But Ray's made a bad mistake in the past that cost somebody a life. And uh, he kind of has placed himself into deep freeze in cases even the cold case squad won't touch. Mm-hmm. Um, and the chief uh, needs him. Needs him back. Needs him back doing interrogations. And so he brings in uh, Jane Randall, who's an experienced detective of the Robbery Homicide Division. Um, And she's returning after being injured in a gunfight. Um, She now has a leg that's an inch shorter than the other one and uh, is very scared about being medically pensioned off. Um, so the chief uh, tells her, you know, I've got a special job for you. I need you to be uh, to be partnered up with Ray Pagan, and I need you to be his minder because Ray's a bit of a loose cannon, and uh, you have to be responsible for him. So she doesn't. She's a little bit reluctant to do this. Uh, they pair up, and and she, Pagan, in their very first conversation, says to her, "Well, what do you think?" And she says, "About what?" He says, "About what the chief said." She goes, "Are you asking me if he was lying?" Ray says, "Yes." And she goes, well, I know he was. You don't need a minder. This is all a setup. And so Ray then says, yes, that's very true. I'm glad you noticed that. But there's something about you that I really need. I was looking specifically for you. I've been looking for somebody like you for a very, very long time. This puts Jane into a bit of a panic because she has a secret that she can't believe anybody else knows about. And it was something that I had researched a long time ago and had just kept it in my writer's treasure chest for Mm -hmm. a perfect place to use it. And without giving it away, Jane has a gift that's just as important as Ray's is. And uh, between the pair of them... um, they help each other. They're totally equal partners, even though Ray is a bit of a mentor in some ways because he's teaching her how to use her gift. Because one of the things when I teach interrogation, because that's my background, is we teach that it's in knowing if somebody's lying is easy. It's understanding what to do with the lie that brings the skill part of interrogation in. 
this book is is unique in a number of ways, uh, one of which is th- this deep dive into interrogation technique. And as you mentioned, you've, you've spent a lot of time doing this. You, you actually teach it to uh, around the country, to law enforcement and fire departments and things like that. You teach interrogation. So, I mean, we all... We've all read books where there is the obligatory interrogation scene where they, you know, the the suspect just confesses at the end because they can't help themselves. But this is a deep dive into it. It's very interesting. Well, I think every every writer is always looking for that different niche within the genre that they write in, right? So if you're writing hard-boiled, you've got to find a different way to get into that private detective thing. Well, it's the same in police procedurals. I needed to find a, a, a different hook um, for my book and my characters. And, you know, it was right there in front of my face with interrogation because whenever I watch television shows, whether they be the fictional ones or even the real ones, like 48 Hours, I pull my hair out. I'm a horrible person to watch police shows with. Um, and so what I wanted to do with this was to bring the reader into the fascinating world of interrogation and and get it as close to the real thing as I could do within the fictional uh, realm. And I think I accomplished that, or at least I hope I have, and that's what the response has been. This is stuff that people just haven't seen or thought about before. And everything that's done in the book by Ray and Jane is something that either I've done or have had uh, partners that have been doing those things. So... um, pretty realistic from that point of view. And it's interesting. You mentioned the idea of needing a hook. You've almost, you've got a character hook with these two characters that are who are so engaging that we just want to learn more and more about them. So it just kind of feeds us through the book with the story. But uh, you've also got the hook of of the interrogation idea. So there's multiple hooks in the book and it, it really is it really is a fantastic book and I, I can't wait for the next one. Well, thank you very much. I I know it's way too early to start talking (laughs) about that. Let's talk about your career in law enforcement for a few minutes, if you don't mind. You spent 35 years with the Los Angeles Police Department. Right, 35 years with LAPD, um, almost 30 of those years uh, working exclusively in sex crimes, and um, 15 of those years um, as the uh, supervisor uh, of a 30-detective unit that covered about 25% of the city. Um, and as a result of that, uh, interrogation was our go-to tool because so much of sex crimes investigations is he said, she said. Uh, and for most people uh, outside of, of police work, they think it's, it's very cut and dried. It's black and white. And yet the longer I was involved in sex crimes, the wider the gray area became. Um, there were, of course, extremes on one end or the other, but, but that middle part was often very murky to get to the truth of what happened. Um, so interrogation became the, our specialty. It was what we did. We began, uh, obviously we taped every interrogation, but after it was done, we didn't just let it sit in evidence. We would take it, watch it at the end of the week, all the interrogations that we'd done, and deconstruct them. What worked? What didn't work? Why did it work? Uh, I encouraged all my people to take any opportunity that they had uh, to use their interrogation techniques, even if it meant uh, working for other detectives or other disciplines where they were called in. And the more success we had, the more often we were called on. And that was why um, the setup with uh, Ray Pagan and Jane Randall in, in Lie Catchers mm-hmm. 
uh, that they would be just allowed to go out and do interrogations um, became from that sort of reality. How much of becoming a good interrogator can be taught? Is it something that you have to have a knack for first, or you have to have certain personality traits to be good, or can it all be taught? Well, I mean, I think you have to be a good listener, first of all. And and I think a lot of it can be taught. We can teach techniques, and there are specific techniques and the reasoning behind them. There are both psychological and physiological reasons behind what happens in the interrogation room. There are a limited number of things that happen in the interrogation room, and I can teach you what they are, and I can teach you how to handle each one of those things. Personality plays a big part of this. When I teach interrogation, I am not trying to turn out clones of Paul Bishop I, you know, and the way I interrogate. I will give them the tools that they need and a sequence that they can use, but then they have to apply it to their own personality. They have to bring themselves uh, into the room. And there are people that can do that, and there are people that can't. We talk about um, when you start at the police department and you're in the academy, they tell you you can sympathize with, with victims, but you can't empathize with them. In other words, you can say, I understand how you feel, but you, you can't say, I feel how you feel. Interrogators, to be a great interrogator, you have to be able to empathize with the people that you're dealing with. And does that cost you? Yeah, it does. But mm-hmm. why are you there? What is the point of your job? Do you want to be great? Do you want to get to the truth or not? One of the things that we've all seen on, on television and we've all read in books is the idea of good cop, bad cop. Yikes. <laughs> it's not something that <laughs> that was really highlighted in the book. So I'm no. curious, what, what's your... What's your take on that? Well, good cop, bad cop is a violation of the Fifth Amendment right and uh, to not be intimidated. And good cop, bad cop is strictly uh, int- intimidation. It's where the good cop comes in and says, you know, my partner is a little bit out of control. You know, if he comes in here and you haven't told me about what happened, I, I can't control him. And, and, and he's a madman. Obviously, that's intimidation. It can lead to false confessions, and those are things that we completely, utterly want to uh, avoid. When I teach interrogation, I will teach you how to completely avoid any taint of a false confession, um, which in this day and age of litigation is really, really important. So, um, you know, I did once write an episode of uh, Diagnosis Murder way back when with uh, Dick Van Dyke in in which I had two characters playing bad cop, worst cop. Uh, (laughs) But in reality, that's something that we just don't use. Now, you you also were involved pretty heavily with the TV show. I I can't remember the name of it, but uh, some time ago you were... You were heavily involved, so can you kind of share the story sure. of that? You know, you're in you're in Los Angeles, and I just get the I get the impression that everyone in Los Angeles is somehow <laughs> or other involved in the movie or the television business. I, I have been approached by uh, um, the people that did The Amazing Race and and Jerry Bruckheimer uh, to be part of a show called Take the Money and Run. Mm-hmm. And um, myself and, and uh, a district attorney, Mary Hanlon Stone, who I'd worked with for many, many years, uh, were the interrogators on the show. It was a reality show based on interrogation. Uh, two contestants had uh, an hour to hide a briefcase anywhere in the city. They were then arrested, uh, put into uh, solitary confinement, and Mary and I had 48 hours using our interrogation techniques on them to find the briefcase, working with two local law enforcement officers out in the field. 
If they, if we didn't find the briefcase, the two suspects, the person, the people who hid the briefcase, got to keep the money. If we found the briefcase and the cops got to keep the money, and, and Mary and I just got to roll onto the next city and do it all over again. <laughs> Um, we thought this is kind of crazy when they said it to us because we don't have uh, guilt. We don't have jail time to hold over these people's heads. Yes, they have to talk to us. They don't have the right to remain silent, but they're expected to lie their butts off. Mm-hmm. Um, so we uh, we did six shows, and, and four out of the six shows, the people who hit the briefcase told us exactly where they hit it. Wow. <laughs> because they just couldn't take being questioned by... Um, professional interrogators. It's a very, very intimidating thing just on the surface of itself, just being questioned by somebody who's a professional at asking questions. And I have to say that in preparation for doing this interview today, I've got in my own mind, if Paul starts asking me questions, just claim there are technical difficulties and hang up. Get out. (laughs) I can't call for a lawyer. We were doing Take the Money and Run. Uh, When we started the first episode, the producers came to us and said, uh, Mary and Paul, we're really sorry, but once the show starts, once the 48 hours starts running, we can't talk to you. We went, why not? They go, well, we're scared you'll get something out of us where the briefcase is hidden. <laughs> so, I mean, they were absolutely paranoid about that, and they were right. I probably would have tried to find out information from them. You know, it's something that uh, um, does cause issues, and, and that's why with, with Ray Pagan and Jane Randall, their gifts have really cost them personally mm-hmm. in their personal life. And so to find a kindred spirit and a professional relationship that's very, very close um, is a joy to both of them. And so they, they find this this inspiration in, uh, from working together. And the way that they each have dealt with what's happened to them and these gifts uh, makes them extremely interesting people. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, they're very complicated. They're, they're, um, there's missing parts to them, just like there's missing parts to all of us. And they have their flaws and they have their strengths. And I, I tried to make them as, as human as possible because interrogation becomes a human act. And that was also with the heart of the book is, obviously, if this is a novel about interrogation, interrogation has to solve the case. And you know, if if Jane is there in the beginning of the book to save Pagan from himself, at some point she has to save Pagan from himself. Now, you sound like a guy who's been writing for a long time, and I, I say that in jest because I know that you have. But as someone who was a law enforcement officer for 35 years, where did you find the time to get started? Um, you know, I was I, it was just a, a natural continuation for me. If you love something... Um, you just want to do it all the time. And, and I was doing the two things I loved most, uh, putting villains in jail and, and putting words on paper and being published. So that was just a joy for me. Um, and somebody asked me once, uh, you know, what, what, what uh, is your best advice for a beginning writer? And my advice was if, if you cannot write, if you are not urged every day with characters exploding out of your head to get down on the page, then don't write. You know, for me, you're a writer because you have to be a writer because it just comes out of you. Uh, It's work. It's hard. um, But there's that constant push that gets you through that. Now, I'd like to, before we wrap up, I'd like to talk for a minute about a series of books that you got started with some other people 
uh, a few years ago called the Fight Club. And Fight Card. Fight Card, sorry. Yeah, that, yeah Fight Club. Common mistake. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but it's you've written a few of them. A lot of other people have written books. Some people that have been guests, guests on this show have written books in the series. Can you walk listeners through uh, the idea for that and how it's gone? Yeah, um, about three years ago, uh, a writer buddy and I, uh, um, his name is Mel Odom, very professional guy with about 200 books to his name. We were on the telephone just chit-chatting, and, and we were kind of bemoaning the fact that we missed the old boxing stories from the days of the pulps in the 40s and 50s, particularly stories by Robert E. Howard, the creator of Conan. He had a lot of boxing stories about a character named Sailor Steve Costigan. And this was really, um, you know, at a time when self-publishing was really coming into its own through the Amazon uh, platform. Mm -hmm. And we kind of figured, well, you know, the the 25,000-word novelette, something you can read in one or two sittings, had gone away. It was almost extinct. But with the new ways of doing self-publishing, we could bring that back. And so he and I just decided, oh, great, let's do this. Let's write boxing stories. And and so we set our two stories in the 50s. He took one brother. I took another brother character. And and we wrote these books. And, and we published them and put them out. And we didn't think anything more about it. Um, but then writer buddies of ours started going, hey, we love this stuff. Can we do one of these? <laughs> And gradually, um, we became not a publishing house, but a, a uh, writer's collective. Everybody was launching these books off of their own Amazon platform. We were all helping each other with publicity and covers and formatting. Uh, and it, it turned into a wonderful experience. And three years later, uh, we've just published our 45th novel in, in the series. And it's incredible. The way the way it has expanded beyond just the idea of 50s pulp, there have been Sherlock Holmes-type yeah. books. Uh, it, it's all over the place. And I am just shocked at the number of writers that I know who have been a part of this. So it's, it's a really cool thing, and I wanted to bring that out so listeners knew about it. Thanks. I mean, for me, it was just a joy to work with a lot of these guys who are on the cusp of greatness. Terrence McCauley, Heath Lowrance, I'm going to forget people, but Eric Beatner, um, guys that are about ready to explode on, on, on the publishing scene, and they were writing fight card books for me. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that is just so cool. I've just, I'm just delighted to be associated with them. Yeah, it is totally cool, as is Lie Catchers, which is one of my favorite books of the year so far. Paul, where can people find it? Obviously, uh, Amazon.com is going to be the greatest place to find it, but it's also available in Kobo and Nook um, and through uh, Pro Se. It's in ebook and uh, trade paperback. Okay, so that's great. Where can people keep up with you and what you're doing? Because you do a lot. Yeah, easily enough, um, paulbishopbooks.com. All right, I will link up to uh, all of this in the show notes, everything that we've mentioned here, as, as well as the Fight Card series, because that's such a, such a fun series. Paul, this has been terrific. Thanks so much for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. This is Stephen Campbell for CrimeFiction.fm. You can find us on iTunes and on the web at www.CrimeFiction.fm. If you do pop by the website, please sign up for the email list. I send out an email each Friday with a summary of the week's interviews. It's the best way to keep up with what we're doing and to be sure you don't miss out on great, great new books like Lie Catchers from Paul Bishop. Thanks for listening.